morning's reading is from John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of these, those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commanders and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Cyphus, the high priest that year. Cyphus was one of the, the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your precious word. And we pray, Lord, that uh, as we consider it now, that each of us would enter more deeply into relationship with you. Come, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in the garden, which in the Bible is the place where lovers meet. And Jesus' time of agony in prayer is over. Now he hears the sound of military feet approaching. And as many as 600 Roman soldiers appear with spears and swords at the ready. Temple police flank the sides of the religious leaders and the Pharisees. And their lanterns and their torches pierce the darkness. If you look at paintings of this scene, they always look the same. Armed figures crowd the canvas, and right in the middle, there is a lonely figure, swamped by all these other figures. The odds against Jesus and the disciples here are dire. But John, our writer, and, and a young man at the time of this scene, and an eyewitness here, is about to tell a very different story. Now, in Luke's version of this scene, Jesus challenges those who are coming to arrest him under cover of darkness. And he calmly steps forward and says this. Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. What do we do when darkness 
comes into our lives. What do we do when darkness reigns? There are different forms of darkness that can enter our lives. There's existential darkness. An elderly parent suddenly begins to develop dementia, or a friend or a sibling develops mental ill health, or cancer invades our body, or a child dies. Many different forms of darkness. What do we do when this darkness comes into our lives? These aren't the principal forms of darkness that this passage speaks about, but its themes will speak into those situations. No, this passage is rather about what happens when moral darkness comes. And that's a really resonant question at the moment because of everything that we're watching on our screens day after day. Concentrated evil has come upon our land. Those were the words of President Zelensky this week after he'd seen the bodies of slaughtered civilians in Bucha. There is an evil, this is an evil that has no limits. His words after the missile attack a few days later on Kramatorsk train station. Now, most of us will never face these kind of horrors, but we may face, probably will face, lesser moral darkness in our life. A noisy and violent neighbor who won't back down. An office boss who bullies and intimidates. Malpractice in a corporation. A home is burgled. A loved one is mugged. What does our passage reveal about our choices when this kind of moral darkness comes? Well, John's answer here is stark. We can betray the supreme good, just as Judas does. We can attack the supreme good, as Jesus' political and religious enemies do. Or we can abandon the supreme good, as Jesus' disciples do, when they flee. Or we can cling to the supreme good. What is the supreme good? Who is the supreme good? Well, John says it is the one who is supremely faithful to the highest form of love, and that is Jesus Christ. We need to look at him. And so let's look at him now in this scene. I want to talk about being faithful to love in an unfaithful world. And the first thing we see here in Jesus' response to his aggressors who come against him is this, that God in Jesus Christ doesn't remain removed from conflict and darkness, but he steps right into the midst of it. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to feel that God has withdrawn from us or gone on walkabout when we're experiencing dark times. But John shows the complete opposite. Jesus actually steps confidently, even cheerfully, into the war zone, onto the battle line. And he does this because he's supremely faithful to the good. We see him, first of all, being faithful to his friends. And we all need faithful friends. One of the the marvels of this passage is that we see Jesus exerting all his energy to protect his friends just as another friend 
betrays him. Jesus and Judas have, have traveled together, lived together, done life together for three years. And we don't know exactly why Judas betrays Jesus. Christians have debated this for the centuries, but the Gospels don't provide a definitive answer. Maybe the mystery of evil is that Judas himself doesn't fully, clearly know. But what we do know is this, is that he is unfaithful to a friend who has only ever been entirely faithful to him. And that betrayal is right at the heart of this passage. What agony that must be for Jesus. Judas has witnessed water being turned into wine. He's, he's seen paralytics rising from their beds. He's seen a storm calmed at sea. A man walk out of his grave. He's seen all of that, and yet he trades it for 30 pieces of silver. And I don't know about you, but my response when I'm betrayed is, can be strong. I remember uh, a time in my childhood at school where my best friend betrayed me. Suddenly I was no longer part of his gang. I was the outsider. It was deeply hurtful and wounding. We made it up later, but I couldn't help reminding him of this when he invited me to dinner 30 years later. <laughs> and it, it didn't make for a good evening. You know, it wasn't my finest moment. But that is the lingering pain of being betrayed. And what we see here is that as Jesus, the one who invites every person he meets into his family, as he experiences the sting of betrayal, he remains entirely faithful to love. In Matthew 26, as Judas the betrayer kisses his cheek, Judas, Jesus calls him friend. And there's absolutely no irony there at all. Friend, Jesus is being just completely sincere. And then he saves the disciples who are huddled behind him. He steps before them out of the garden, acting as a human shield. Jesus knows exactly what's coming. John makes that really, really clear. The fate of the disciples is totally within the control of Jesus Christ. The other gospel writers focus much more on the blind terror, on the fear of the disciples. But John's point is crucial, that Jesus' sufferings for his friends are freely given. He's the good shepherd who's coming against the wolf. He's shielding the sheep in order to enable them to go to safety. In other words, he pursues his friends' greater good, which is to survive and to go on to become the founders of the early church, even at the very moment that they're deserting him and he's experiencing loneliness. What kindness, what love. And he suffers willingly. He's a savior far more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved. And he doesn't want us to suffer anything that we cannot bear. In John 10, he says of the disciples, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. On the 21st of March, um, 
Boris Johnson revealed that around the time that Russia was poised to invade Ukraine, Johnson invited Volodymyr Zelensky and his family to come and take refuge in the UK. And then he added this, Volodymyr has always been clear, his duty is to the Ukrainian people. He's going to stay there, he's going to look after them. Christ cares for your safety. If you're hurting for any reason today, he is with you on that battle line. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to go away. He's going to stay with you because that is what love does. And then Jesus is faithful to himself. Scripture says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, the soldiers and the leaders, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. When I'm threatened, when I'm cornered, it's so easy for me to betray my better self. I can um, take up arms against the person who's coming against me. I can try and flee into the night and kind of just melt away. Or I can put on a false front. I can wear a mask. I can even collaborate with the enemy in order to make my life easier and avoid confrontation. But Jesus never does any of these. For he's love, and he's got to be faithful to God, the God who is love. The songwriter David Wilcox wrote in a 1994 song, in this scene set in the shadows, like the night is here to stay, there is evil cast around us, but it's love that wrote the play. Is Jesus here just a, a wretched human being who's been cornered by his enemies and he's finally going to be exposed as a false messiah? No. The way he identifies himself here, I am, I am he, these are the very words that God uses to Moses in Exodus 3. The way that God names himself, I am. God announces his name there to the Israelites just as they're about to be brought out of captivity into a new life and into the promised land. And Jesus uses the same name for himself here, just as he's about to lead us, his people, out of captivity and into perfect freedom. No accident. He's no mere mortal. He's no mere rabbi, a great teacher. He is the divine, eternal, absolute God. That is who he is here. And the God of love is writing this play. No wonder that the leaders and the soldiers fall to the ground in fear and awe. No wonder. They came to arrest him. His presence arrests them. And then because he's love, he never unleashes the powers at his disposal in order to protect himself or to do them harm. In Matthew's version of this scene, Jesus says to his disciples as they draw their swords, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels. Jesus could call down angelic battalions. On a human level, he could command his disciples to fight 
He could just flee into the night like we saw the Afghan president doing last year, if you remember, when the Taliban resurfaced in Afghanistan. He doesn't do any of those things. This is the hour when darkness reigns. And right through John's Gospel, Jesus has been saying, my hour has not yet come. Well, now it has come. The hour that darkness reigns. And it's the hour that fulfills Scripture. The hour when Jesus is going to hand himself over to his enemies as a sacrificial substitute for our sin. Love is writing this play. And then after Peter rashly strikes off the ear of the high priest's servant, Jesus does an extraordinary thing. He steps across the enemy lines in order to heal this man. And I love how specific John is in the text here. He says, the servant's name was Malchus. Malchus isn't some nameless threat. He's not those Russians, those Ukrainians. He's not the hated other. To Jesus, he's a man made in the image of God. Mel Gibson's The Passion, which is not my favorite film about Holy Week, although it's strong, but has, I'll never forget this scene. Malchus just sits stunned on the floor after the healing, staring up at Jesus, and you see this rising belief in him that this man is the Son of God. This is God at work in Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve ushered sin into the world and relationship breakdown and violence followed. And now in a garden, Jesus brings love and healing and he begins to redeem creation. In John 18, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is from another place. Jesus loves even his enemies. He can't but love them. It's who he is. He must be true to himself. And he has kingdom power to heal. Now, in the run-up to this sermon this week, um, I actually put out my lower back, and uh, it was agony. But my faith rose at one point, and I, I just put a hand on my lower back, and I prayed for healing. And I prayed for healing for years for other people in this church, and, and sometimes seen that kind of healing, but never for myself. And this time, the pain was instantly healed, just totally gone. The risen Jesus wants to heal people. He's the great playwright. He can just write physical pain out of the scene of a play. And he wants to heal spiritually this morning and physically, and he wants to heal memories. He wants to heal emotions. And then third, Jesus is faithful to his Father. All through his ministry, that's been his greatest wish, only to do what he sees his Father doing. And now he commands Peter this, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What does it mean for Peter to take up his sword? Well, according to Jesus, Peter is trying to fight reality. 
He's trying to fight the great plan that Jesus is seeking to write for our salvation. But Jesus, by contrast, is going to drink his cup with a perfect, settled peace. When we don't get our own way, when we can't draw our sword and act, when we have to drink a cup, a hard cup of sacrificial love, it's so easy to do so, feeling an inward bitterness and resentment. We inwardly resent caring for a declining parent or a mentally unwell friend or just having to endure a chillier phase in marriage or in a valued relationship. We drink the cup, but we do it with extreme bad grace. But look at Jesus. He's been squeezed in the oil press. He's been crushed of his own desires, and he's perfectly at one with the Father's will. When a relationship brings suffering to us, involves a cost, the world's view is, get out of that relationship, move on. Look after yourself. But Jesus calls us to live with a willing faithfulness towards each other. A love, to give over a love, a deeper love, a truer love, and to give it freely. To serve each other without resentment. So, uh, we're not trying to make other people feel guilty about the cost that we're bearing. And it's this cheerfulness, I think, that so attracts people to Jesus Christ. And when we live in this light, then our words and our actions increase in persuasiveness to others. We grow in moral integrity. We live out lives of love even when tough times are forced upon us. We demonstrate moral power in the hour when darkness reigns. I remember queuing up with many others, and I'm sure many of you have done, on Robben Island to just look briefly into that prison cell where Nelson Mandela was held captive. To just for a few seconds glimpse that thin pallet mattress on the floor where he used to sleep. And we visit such places and we honor such people because we recognize that they've discovered something really precious. Really precious. They've drunk the cup handed to them with grace. And they live out a new clarity of moral action as a result. They're being faithful to love in an unfaithful world. And then finally, Jesus is faithful to us Standing outside this garden, he doesn't just act to save the disciples behind him. He acts to save the whole of humanity that is in front of him. The thing is this, that if you have love, but you don't have faithfulness, then that love can just be transient. It can be temporary. It can be fickle. But if you have faithfulness without love, it can just be mere obedience. Faithful to what? The Roman soldiers are faithful in this scene, but they're faithful to Caesar. No, we need faithfulness to love. And that is what Jesus is being here when he's drinking this cup. In the Old Testament, when sinners drank the cup of God's wrath, they staggered and they fell unconscious in the street. They were scorned and humiliated by their enemies. 
And as Jesus goes to the cross at Calvary, as a result of handing himself over to his enemies here, he is going to truly stagger through drinking this cup. He's the last person on earth who should have God's wrath coming against him. And yet he chooses to give himself on the cross for us so that we might be saved. I mean, it's extraordinary to think. Jesus, whose very nature to be is perfectly at one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he's going to endure separation from the Father, the agony of that for us. It's just a complete violence to himself and to who he is. But that is his love. He's supremely faithful to the highest expression of love. In the words of Philippians 2, Paul says there, Jesus is obedient to death, even on a cross. Obedient to death, even on a cross. That is true love. True love costs. True love is obedient to death, even death on a cross. He drinks the cup of God's wrath in the darkest of nights so that we might drink the cup of blessing in the blazing sunlight. Now, when a human being is faithful for a high moral ideal and bears a cost, then we have, like a Nelson Mandela, when Jesus bears the agony of separation from his Father in order to save the world, then that's a marvel. That's the greatest marvel the world has ever known. Now, as you leave church this Palm Sunday, you're going to be handed a palm cross. And I'd love to just encourage you to Take this home and gaze on it this week. Hold it. Take it to bed. Sleep with it under your pillow and meditate on the great love that Jesus Christ has for you. Let me end with just a few final thoughts. What does it mean for us that Jesus is faithful on the cross? What does it mean? And actually, is the world really so unfaithful? Well, the great French film director, Jean Renoir, once said this, is it possible to succeed without any act of betrayal? And the truth is, we've probably all betrayed someone else or other people at some time in our lives. But the Bible also teaches us that we're all sinners. And when we sin, we betray Jesus. And John, our writer here, says that if we believe that we're without sin, we deceive ourselves and, our truth is not, and the truth is not in us. But there's more here because the example of the disciples shows that the people who abandon Jesus here, who betray him in this way, are the very people who go on to become the founders of the early church. The Holy Spirit fills them with new life and it means that they can put a fickle love and a selfish love and their personal fears for their safety behind them. They become faithful to love in an unfaithful world. They become world changers. And so if you're here this morning and you think, I could never make anything significant of my life, I couldn't be a person of influence because of a failure in my life or because of how I've abandoned Jesus, then think again. Because Jesus comes specifically for you. 
He brings forgiveness and he turns cowards and traitors and collaborators into men and women of vision and destiny. And he does that again and again and again. And when you're faithful to the highest love, you can know from this scene that Jesus is always with you. A.T. Pearson, who was a 19th century Presbyterian pastor, wrote this. It's in the deepest darkness of the starless midnight that men and women learn how to hold on to the hidden hand most tightly and how that hand holds them, that he sees where we do not and knows the way he takes. And though the way be to us a roundabout way, it is the right way. We don't always see clearly in a personal night, but Jesus does, and he is with us. So, where was Jesus in this moment of moral darkness? Stepping right into the heart of it. Where was Jesus in this moment of evil? Starting to drain the cup that was filled because of our wrongdoing. Where was Jesus in this moment of violence? Bringing healing to all, including to his very enemies. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the only answer as to what we can do when moral darkness comes. And so let's be faithful to him, the one who out of love is always and eternally faithful to us. Amen.